Today on the John Akerberg Show, we will examine the evidence from astronomy that points to an all-powerful creator. Did you know that in our Milky Way galaxy that there are about 300 to 400 billion stars? But there are about 2 trillion galaxies in the universe today with billions of more stars. Why did God have to create so many stars and galaxies in the universe? My guest today is an astronomer who will tell us that if God had not made that many galaxies and stars, no human life could exist on Earth today. Why? My guest is astronomer and astrophysicist, Dr. Hugh Ross, who obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in physics from the University of British Columbia, his PhD in astronomy from the University of Toronto, and for five years was on the faculty at Caltech. We invite you to join us for this special edition of the John Ankerberg Show. Welcome to our program. I'm John Ankerberg, and I have a wonderful guest with me today. He is uh, an astronomer and astrophysicist. His name is Dr. Hugh Ross. Hugh obtained his Bachelor of Science degree in Physics from the University of British Columbia and his PhD in Astronomy from the University of Toronto. Then for five years he joined the staff at Caltech and did postdoctoral research on quasars. And in 1986 he established the ministry Reasons to Believe, which we'll talk about along the way. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever looked up at the night sky and looked at the stars? You're seeing some of them around us right now. Do you think they're uh, hot? Do you think they're cold? What do you think they are? Where do they come from? What are they made of? How many stars are up there? Does it matter? Does it matter to you? Would you be here if uh, there wasn't a certain number of stars out there that you were looking at? These are the questions I'm going to ask Hugh. He's a genius in science, physics, uh, cosmology, you name it and uh, you'll see that. But I want to start, Hugh, uh, and not scare them right off the bat with uh, uh, some of the things we're going to talk about here. I want to start when you were a kid, and you were seven years old, and you're walking down the street with your mom and dad, and you did look up at the starry skies, and as a seven-year-old kid, you said to your dad, uh, are the stars, uh, are they cold or hot? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Vancouver. It rains a lot in Vancouver. I remember one night when I was with my parents and suddenly the rain clouds broke and you could see the stars crystal clear. I was in awe looking at those stars, but I turned to my dad and said, are those stars hot? And he said, son, yes, they're very hot. I said, tell me why. And he said, you need to go to the library. Yeah. And yeah. fortunately, our grade two teacher took us on a field trip to the Vancouver Public Library, a library that had three million volumes. And so I got a card, and within the first year, I read all the books in the children's section on physics and astronomy, then they gave me a pass to the adult section. And then you went through that section. I did. And then yeah, I'm, and then that wasn't good enough, so you, went, you got a card so you could go to the University of British Columbia right. to that library. Right. And so here was this young guy going through the stack of books and uh, what you found out was that there were how many stars up in the sky? Well, in our Milky Way galaxy, there's about three or four hundred billion stars. 
So that's just the stars in our galaxy, and there's about two trillion galaxies in the universe. So yeah, there's lots of stars. Two trillion galaxies yes. in the universe. So there's got to be uh, way more stars than two trillion. And my question to you is that if those stars were not out there, would it matter to us as human beings? Would we even be here? Well, it was Carl Sagan. I had him briefly as a professor who said, we're all made of stardust. The very first stars in the universe are composed of only hydrogen and helium. But in their nuclear furnaces, they make some of that hydrogen and helium into heavier elements. And then the largest stars blast the ashes uh, into interstellar space, where a new generation of stars take those ashes. And because of that enrichment of elements heavier than hydrogen and helium, their nuclear furnaces produce much more elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. And for life to be possible, you need three uh, generations of stars. Our star, the sun, is a third-generation star. And only third-generation stars have an adequate quantity of heavy elements to make life possible. Uh, but too many heavy elements is just as much of a problem as too few. So we have just the right number of stars in the universe for human life to be possible. And we're here at just the right time in the history of the universe for human life to be possible. Yeah. Now, our program is all about the fact that uh, science, if people look at it and study it, will bring them to belief in God. You were not a Christian when you were a young man. No. In fact... Uh, almost all the way up to, what, 17 years of age, wasn't it? Somewhere in that area? Well, it was at 17 I realized there had to be a God, but I didn't discover who that God was until I was 19. Yeah. What did you think? Because you're like a lot of people out there that believe there is a God. Einstein believed there was a God, but he didn't believe he was personal. What did you think about God? I was raised in a home where they taught the morality of the Christian faith, but neither of my parents believed in eternal life. Uh, but when I looked at the universe, I realized there has to be a cosmic beginner. And I wondered what or who that cosmic beginner was. So I began not even knowing if it was a person. But as I began to look at the universe in detail and its subcomponents, I realized this has to be the agent of a personal being because of the amount of investment and care and design he put into the universe throughout its entire history to make our existence possible. Yeah. You wrote something in your book that I found very interesting. You said, to study the origin and development of the universe, which is what you started to do, in a sense, is to investigate the basis for any meaning and purpose to life. How did you come up with that? Well, if the universe is really designed to make possible a home for humanity, and given the vastness of the universe, uh, its age, its extent, all of its components. That's a lot of investment to make a home for humanity. And so that told me that whatever is responsible for the universe must have a very high value and probably some specific purposes for us human beings. And it's something I noticed about humanity, regardless of their philosophical worldview perspective, they all have this sense that we possess some kind of purpose 
value, and destiny. Where did that come from? Uh, that's not something you'd expect from an evolutionary process, and it's built only into human beings. The rest of the life on planet Earth doesn't share that. So that was another piece of evidence. Maybe the cosmic creator indeed has a purpose and a destiny for we human beings. Yeah, and you also say that unfortunately many researchers refuse to acknowledge the very evidence that they're looking at, and uh, they put on a pair of glasses that says, I don't care what I see, that God is not necessary to explain anything. Conclusion is part of those glasses. It is, and we all have our biases, so you always need to say, what kind of glasses am I wearing? And uh, I think it's good, too, in terms of dialogue, to always reveal to people where you're coming from, what your biases are, what your worldviews are, so at least have a basis for understanding your arguments. Yeah, but other people say, you know, I've got a pair of glasses that says that God is whoever or whatever I choose. It's rare for them to admit that their lenses would focus in on the evidence and apart from any bias would lead them to conclusions from the science that they're actually looking at. What would you say to open the door to some of those people because you struggled with this yourself? I did. But I put my biases to the test. You know, I began believing, okay, uh, there is no God. Then I discovered there is a God. Didn't think this God was personal. But I kept testing uh, my presuppositions and beliefs. And so I would share with other people, hey, uh, I, I appreciate where you're coming from. What have you done to put those beliefs to any kind of rigorous objective test? Yeah. Now, let's go back to the question that you asked your mom and dad, and that is, uh, are stars hot? What did you find out? Well, I went to the library. I came home with uh, five books on physics and astronomy uh, when I was seven, and those books explained to me why the stars are hot. There's nuclear furnaces inside the stars. One of the books I had was on nuclear physics, so I read that, and so then I had an answer, and I shared it with my parents. My parents really didn't seem to care. They were just mm -hmm. impressed that I, that I was satisfied. When did you figure out where did the stars come from? I mean, there's a whole bunch of stars. If you're talking trillions and trillions of stars out there, where did they come from? Well, what really blew me away is all these stars in the universe, a trillion, trillion stars, a trillion, trillion planets, that only makes up 0.27% of all the stuff of the universe. Most of the universe is dark energy and dark matter. Which we're going to talk about in full later yeah, on. Yeah, but what I realized, they all have to be present in just the right proportions in order for physical light to be possible in the universe. The stars are neither too few uh, nor too many. They're just the right number. We've got all of these stars out there. If they were not there... Do humans need them to exist on Earth or to exist any place? Well, we do need them because they make all the elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. And we live on a planet that has a panoply of 92 elements. And one thing that amazed me growing up, the quantity of each of those elements in the crust of the Earth is exactly what we need for human civilization to be possible. We don't have too much uranium. We don't have too little uranium. We've got just the right amount. And that works for all the elements we see in the periodic table. That communicated to me, somebody must have fixed the numbers. Why is everything exactly just right? 
Okay, let's jump to another one. That's uh, we see the sun, and here you have a bright star, and uh, it is close to our planet, and uh, you studied this quite a bit. I guess, uh, why is the sun right where it's at so important to human life on Earth? Well, John, stars are a lot like human beings. They're unstable when they're young. They're unstable when they're old. They're maximally stable when they're middle age. But unlike humans, uh, that stability period is quite brief. And so I realize the sun is exactly the right age to have maximum stability. It's exactly the right mass to have maximum stability. And my fellow astronomers have been searching for 65 years to find another star that's sufficiently like the sun that it could be a candidate to have a planet orbiting it in which advanced life is possible. They have found many stars that are twins of one another, but they've yet to find a star that's a twin of the sun. And something that just got published a year ago is the fact that it's done a survey of stars looking at the most stable stars. Our star, in terms of its luminosity stability, is five times more stable than the star that places second to the sun. And most of them are way less uh, stable uh, than the sun. And we need that stability for human global civilization Yeah, to be because possible. the sun has not always been as stable as it is right now. And if it wasn't, it would be harmful to us. The way it is just now is very beneficial to us as human beings to live on this planet. But if we were here a couple billion years ago earlier, the fact is we'd be in big trouble. Why? We'd be in big trouble because the early sun is particle radiation, X-ray, gamma radiation, flaring activity is about 100,000 times greater than it is today. So great that no life would have been possible in the early Earth. However, um, by the time the sun is about uh, 700 million years old, uh, that instability is subsided enough that bacterial life is possible. And what I notice is the moment the sun is stable enough for bacteria, we have bacteria. There's no time delay. And so as you look at the history of life on planet Earth, it's in sync with the physics of the sun. But not until about 100,000 years ago did the sun become stable enough for the entry of human beings. And that's about when we humans begin to show what up What made scene. it stable? Well, you know, it's nuclear fusion. And uh, stars that are uh, fusing hydrogen to helium, about halfway through their period where fusion is possible, they enter into this extreme luminosity phase. Our sun right now is perfectly middle-aged. And so that's the best time, the only time, in which human civilization is possible. And we're going to exit that relatively soon. Now, I don't want to scare our audience out there, but the fact is I want to ask this question, and that is the sun is middle age. It's not always going to be middle age. It's going which direction and what's going to happen to humanity on Earth when it goes older? Well, as it gets older, its flaring activity is going to increase. Its X-ray and gamma-ray radiation will increase. And that will relatively soon, astronomically speaking, eliminate the possibility of all life on planet Earth. 
but also as the sun fuses hydrogen to helium, its nuclear furnace becomes progressively more efficient. So for the last four billion years, uh, the sun has been getting hotter and hotter, more and more luminous. And within a million and a half years from now, two million years from now, the sun will be so bright that the only way to compensate would be to reduce the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere to keep the temperature in the surface of the earth so a photosynthetic life is possible, but it's actually going to require dropping the carbon dioxide level down to 150 parts per million. When that happens, photosynthesis ends. So in terms of human existence, the end is within two million years. Yeah, uh, there are so many books that uh, I've thought of offering our audience and uh, have chosen not to yet. One of them is on climate change. And it also has to do with uh, a little bit of the moon. We're going to talk about the moon and the earth. The interplay between the earth and the moon and also the effect of the sun, how the moon affects the tilt of the earth so that our earth revolves around in a way that the temperature is just right for humanity. Now, maybe I'm saying that completely wrong, but I think no, you you're know wrong to something, uh, John, because the physics and history of the Earth Moon Sun system yields the most spectacular astronomical evidence we have to date uh, for supernatural, super intelligent design of the cosmos so that we humans can exist. It's the thing that really blows me away. Yeah, I think the astronomers and uh, cosmologists have looked at a bunch of star, moon, planets out there. And out of all of them that they've looked at, ours is special. Why? Well, I remember when astronomers were discovering the first planets orbiting stars like the sun. That happened in 1995. And they predicted, we're going to find lots of planets just like the planets in our solar system. Well, today, over 5,000 planets outside the solar system have been discovered. None of those planets are anything like any of the eight planets in our solar system. And this led astronomers to the discovery not only must Earth be fine-tuned design to make possible existence of humans, all eight of the planets in the solar system must be fine-tuned. So when our family celebrates Thanksgiving, we thank God for Uranus, Neptune, Mercury, Venus, because we realize all of them have to be designed in very specific ways to make possible our Thanksgiving dinner. That's even true of the five asteroid and comet belts that orbit about the sun. They're unlike any asteroid or comet belts we see anywhere else in our galaxy. Yeah. Our whole purpose for doing these programs is to show them this is the kind of evidence that brought you to belief in the God of the Bible is because, first of all, the biblical statements, uh, a program up ahead, we're going to show biblical statements where God, before the world even began, he made decisions. And he then, when the world did begin and man came on earth, 
he put some of the decisions that he had made before he actually made the world, he put them in Scripture. And it took science for over 2,000 years to find out what in the world he was talking about in science that he had put in the Bible, and they found out it's exactly right. We're going to talk about this a little later on. But uh, for those that are searching, when you find the God of the universe, he's not only a deist God that created it, but he's a personal God that the Bible says, John 3.16, the motive for God is that God so loved the world that he did something, that he gave his only special son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you did that one time. What advice would you give to people that are searching for reason and purpose in their life and they would like to know if there's actual evidence that would lead them to the Creator? Well, what impresses me is that the one that created the universe, the Son of God, was the one that came to earth, humbled himself as a human being, and demonstrated a life of moral perfection in front of us. The fact that the one that created the entire universe chose to come here and become like one of us, and becoming like one of us, chose to sacrifice his life so that we could gain the moral perfection he possesses and we don't possess. That to me was a remarkable offer. The fact that he would condescend to do that, to make possible uh, us gaining what we lacked, moral perfection, and actually getting his help in directing our life. What impressed me, he says, if you will take my offer of forgiveness for all of your offenses against me and against other humans, I will send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will help you and instruct you in how to transform your life to become a follower of me. I said, that's an offer too good to turn down. Yeah, that's like John 1.12 says, you've got to not only believe, but you've got to receive him into your own life. It's like getting married where you say, yeah, this is a nice girl, I could marry her, but you're not married until you say, I, I do. do. I'm right. And God's waiting for you to come to him and say, I do, I'll follow what you say. Folks, uh, we're just starting on this, and we're going to be talking about Einstein and also Stephen Hawking and their theories uh, with Hugh, and you won't want to miss that. So uh, thanks for joining us today, and if you'll just stay tuned for a moment, i got a personal word for you. Stay tuned for scenes from next week's program. Thanks for joining me today. If you'd like to have all of the information in our six TV programs with Dr. Hugh Ross, they're available on two DVDs for a gift of $78. Now, in program one, Dr. Ross explains things that happened when the universe was 100 billionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second old that made it possible for the universe to be the right size at this time in history so that we can have life on Earth. In program two, we know that in our Milky Way galaxy, there are about 300 to 400 billion stars. Yet there are at least about two trillion galaxies in the universe with billions and billions of more stars. Why did God have to create so many stars and galaxies in the universe so human life could exist on Earth? In program three, why did the Kobe satellite in 1992 
give scientists convincing proof that the cosmic background radiation of the universe proved the Big Bang model was true. Then, in program four, can we change climate change? An astronomer, Dr. Hugh Ross, gives scientific solutions to climate change and explains how we can stabilize the climate to benefit all life on planet Earth and to benefit us economically and to benefit our health and the health and well-being of all of humanity. In program five, Dr. Ross tells us why many of the world's leading physicists, astronomers, and cosmologists that used to be atheists changed their mind after studying the intricate design of the universe and they now believe in God or an all-powerful designer. In program six, Dr. Ross talks about how the Bible predicted information about the creation of the universe that only the creator who created it would know. What does that tell us about the Bible? Now, in addition to these six programs on DVD, if you'd like to read Dr. Hugh Ross's 333-page book called The Creator and the Cosmos, it is available for a gift of only $15. If you'd like to have all six programs plus the book, they are available together for a gift of only $90. You may order these items right now by calling us at 1-800-805-3030. That's 1-800-805-3030. You may call that same number any day this week, 24 hours a day, or you may order these items at our website right now at jashow.org, where we have a secure place for you to give your gift. That's jashow.org. And then, if you live in Canada, would you please call us at 1-866-746-5803. That's 1-866-746-5803. And our Canadian website is jashow.ca. That's jashow.ca. And when we receive your gift, we'll send you a receipt and a personal thank you. And I'll appreciate your help very much. Next week on The John Ankerberg Show. Well, there's a principle you see described in the Psalms and the Book of Job that the more we learn about nature, the more evidence we'll uncover for the supernatural handiwork of God. You know, I put out a weekly blog called Today's New Reason to Believe. And it's based on the fact that I go through the scientific literature every day there are new discoveries being published that give us more evidence, not less, for the supernatural handiwork of God. I tell my friends who are still skeptical, wait one week and see what gets published.
Our goal is to present the evidence for the gospel worldwide and to encourage Christians in their walk with the Lord. This program is sponsored by the John Ankerberg Show Ministries and is made possible by the grace of God and your faithful prayers and gifts.